This could be a performance art piece. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and now the recording has started, so now we're going to look like real genius. <laughs> yeah, hopefully this can be edited. <laughs> Alex or Havo, do you guys have his phone number? Were you texting him? Uh, I don't have his number, Havo. Uh, yeah, have his. Hey, Chris, can you hear me? Listen to Chris. I don't think he can hear us. Or he's, or he's amazing at trolling us. That's actually a real possibility. There. Hello? Wow. Can you hear us? Hello? <laughs> Can you hear? Can you hear us now, Chris? I can hear you now. Yes. Can you hear me? Oh, awesome. Yep. There we go. Hey, I've got my uh, podcast microphone. <laughs> That's nice. good. Yeah. That's how you sound so smooth. <laughs> I feel like I should be on like on a smooth jazz station. Welcome <laughs> to KSNZ. <laughs> Coming up, six hours of Kenny G. Yeah. Forget Kenny's A through F because we've got Kenny G for the rest of the night. Here on Case News. <laughs> Loud sound effects optional. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, now that you have both your podcast microphone and your podcast headphones. Uh, yeah. You know. Cool. Plus your vision hat. Yeah, do we want to get going or wait a couple more minutes since we're having some issues and people might be still messing with that? Look what I'm drinking, Havo. Jealous. Live Oak. Ooh. I was just there. I know. I was sitting across the table for me. <laughs> Man, those, those, smoke, those so smoke burrs were fantastic. I mean, just mm, I they, they had seven of them uh, on tap, and it was like, this one's good, this one's good, this one's good. Yeah, yeah I mean, those guys have got it dialed in. The only Great. one that wasn't there now was the Martin, but, you know, that, that was to be expected. Yeah, that's probably the one that's going to... Man, those beers are spectacular. Uh, I'm so mad that, that we had Live Oak for like three months here in Houston, and it was just long enough for me to get really addicted to them, and then they yanked them out completely. Ouch. <laughs> really damn good. Cool. Well, is it uh, me introducing Chris today, or... Sure enough, go ahead. All right. Yeah, unfortunately, the more uh, competent member uh, of leadership couldn't make it tonight. So I guess it's up to me to read tonight's agenda. So uh, <laughs> even if, even if you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So first off, uh, the West Coast Pilsner results are out. Uh, Haven just sent out all, heck, I don't know, like 90, 100 East pouches uh all on handwritten envelopes and uh the 
oatmeal stout episode I think is going to be airing in a week or two and likewise the west coast pilsner podcast entries should be uh, ready to be sent in in a few weeks and uh kind of relating to that uh for the brew club experiment series uh if you're not aware on the discord channel we've been talking about doing a uh, kind of a group experiment where people are going to take the nova logger and the diamond logger and compare those uh don't know if i'm allowed to speak on this, but I guess I will, unless someone interrupts me, but we're hoping to get that posted on the upcoming website, uh, where we'll probably be doing a little bit of a knockoff of Marshall's uh, with that giant group experiment. And next week, also on the Discord channel, uh, we're hoping to do the uh, Brew Club trivia night for the third time. Uh, just like last time, make sure you log on to uh, Discord shit talking on the voice chat completely optional uh and the winner will be getting themselves a lalamond east and after that yeah and a week and next month we're going to have brian perky back on to talk about how that group experiment is going and everybody's impressions of using nova lager and then also giving a presentation on dry lager east in general so that'll be pretty exciting and speaking of guests, we've got Chris Colby. I think he used to journal about both beer and wine, but I guess maybe that wine knowledge has now been replaced by poisonous plant knowledge. So yes. uh, welcome. <laughs> Should I go? Yeah, yeah, why not? All right. Well, uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I always love talking to homebrewers especially when um, I'm not talking to them about uh, fucking hard seltzer. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to start tonight with uh, talking about reiterated mashing, and then um, I can go into uh, the other topics that you guys are interested in. But I think Sounds there's awesome. a lot lot to go in reiterated mashing. And uh, I don't have any uh, – I don't have, like, a PowerPoint for this. But if you're interested afterwards, you can email me, and I'll send you the notes that I have. Uh this covers everything I'm going to say tonight, and there's some extraneous details thrown in there. Awesome. And uh, so my email is uh, colbybrew, C-O-L-B-Y-B-R-E-W, all lowercase, at mac.com, M-A-C.com. And uh, I'm also on my on Beer and Gardening Journal, the, the whole there's a whole series on this, what I'm going to say. But this is a newer, sort of updated version of that. Okay, so... The, the basic idea behind reiterated mashing is to make a, a very high gravity but low color wort and, and make that at a, at a high extract efficiency. Like, don't waste any grain. Um, and the, the beer you make from this, it can be at least 9.5% uh, ABV, which is strong, but not, you know, you, you've had stronger beers. But at least that, but very light colored, like a Pilsner. Like, you know, if you hand it to someone, there, there's no way they're going to guess that it's a, a nine and a half, you know, or more. You know, you can get up to like 14%, depending on what you do. Uh, uh, but very light colored beer, but also very, very strong. And you do this by mashing twice, uh, sequentially, actually. The the first mash, you, you mix crushed malted grains and hot water, like you always do. And you run off, uh, you run off some wort. And this is actually your brewing liquor 
for your main mash. Um, okay, so, and, and the brewing liquor includes the strike water, you know, that you used to mash in with, and your water for sparging. So essentially, the second, the second mash forward, you're making beer like you normally do, except you've replaced water with wort. Okay, and in the second, in the second mash, you mix your crushed malted grains with the wort from the first mash, and so. At least theoretically, you can get up to double the gravity that you normally would if you use the same procedure. Um, spoiler alert, you can't, but you can get pretty close. Uh, <laughs> the laws of physics and chemistry conspire, <laughs> conspire against you at some point, but you can get pretty close. Okay, and, a, and an excellent question to ask at this point is why the hell would I go through all that? Because it's a long brew day. It's a, it's a long, brutal brew day. And so there's only two reasons you would ever really want to do this. If, if you want to make something that's high in gravity, low in color, and have a good extract efficiency, all three of those things together, this is something you should do. The second is just like if you just like a challenge. If you've been brewing for a while and you're like, I'm tired of making, you know, the next iteration of Hazy IPA or whatever, or, you know, um, and I don't want to try something new, this is a good thing to try. Okay, um, before we get into how exactly this works, I just want to re review uh, how to make a big beer, because there's multiple ways you can make a big, strong beer. Uh, the first sort of, you might say the classic, is you, you mash some grains, you collect a bunch of wort, and then you boil that down. Okay, and, you know, that works well. People have done it for years. Uh but the wort does, in an extended boil, the wort does start to pick up color. Even if you if, if you use very light-colored grains to start with, uh, an extended boil, you know, over two or three hours, you start to pick pick up some color. And, you know, that's not a problem if you don't care. Uh, you know, but if you, for whatever weird reason, like light-colored beers, uh, then going that route is not what you want to do. Um, the simplest option would be you know, mash some grains and collect enough wort for, you know, a 60 to 90 minute boil and then boil it down. And then at the end, dump in some malt extract. Okay. This works well, you, you know, malt extract boosts your, uh, uh, your gravity, but it also adds color and, and your wort, the resulting wort is less fermentable. Okay. Extract wort is always darker than all grain wort for the same specific gravity. If you make a, you know, a Pilsner from just Pilsner malt and a Pilsner from uh, Pilsner malt extract, the malt extract is going to be noticeably darker because they've uh, concentrated, you know, the wort, you know, they've already boiled it once and then you make a beer and you boil it again. Um, and it's also extract wort is always less fermentable than all grain wort. If you, and when you're talking about a, a big beer already, you know, you're going to want it to ferment down to a reasonable level so it's not just, you know, like sickeningly sweet. Um, so that that option works, but, you know, you know what the result is going to be. Uh, okay, a third option hits sort of two of the three goals of reiterated mashing, and that's just take like a metric shit ton of grain, put it in your uh, mash ton, and run off just the first wort. Don't sparge, you know, only the first wort. And then boil that down. And there you can make a very, very high gravity beer, very low color. Uh, but the only thing 
you've done is you you've done this at the expense of your extract efficiency. You've left a, a bunch of grain behind in the grain bed. And of course, you can do uh, some sort of party guile esque thing where you you know refresh the mash with some new new grains and make a second beer. But uh, fundamentally, you're 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 at a low with with just that first beer, you're at a low extract efficiency. So in in reiterated mashing, you another way to think about this is is you concentrate the wort in the mash tun and not the kettle. Instead of boiling the volume down, you mix wort and water together, or, or wort and mash grains together, and have that uh, become your wort. So, you know, in, in order to succeed, you need to start, obviously, with light ingredients. You wouldn't want to uh, add a pound of Crystal 60 to a recipe you're doing this way because, you know... Uh, you're, you're just defeating the entire purpose. Um, and, you know, the second reason that it works is, is there's just less heat, less boil time. So, uh, and then that results in less color pick, pick up. So I just want to walk through what a typical, re if there, there is such a thing, but a typical reiterated mash brew day would be like. Uh, okay, in the, uh, in the first... In the first mash, your goal is to generate your brewing liquor, both your strike water and your sparge water, for the second mash. And so that's your goal. But you also want to minimize the time you spend at this step. Okay, this, you know, normally your strike water is so you just take your hose and fill your, your HLT and add, add the, you know, uh, minerals or whatever. But here you're, you're, you've essentially got part of a you know, part of a brewing process to do your first, uh, just to make your brewing liquor. So you want to minimize the time ex expended. And how you do this is you start with a high temperature single infusion mash. Although, you know, high temperature mashes lead to less fermentable wort, you've got the whole second mash coming. So don't worry about that. Uh, high temperature single infusion mash. Um, use, use the iodine test. After about five minutes, test your wort and see, is it, has it started to, you know, has it converted yet? A lot of if you're using, you know, uh, high diastatic malts like any North American malt, five minutes is all it takes for conversion. And you know, so do the test every five minutes. And even if it looks like it's starting to do that, okay, that's fine. That's that's the end of your first mash. So you you can mash out or not as an option. Um, you can recirculate a little bit, uh, but essentially you're wasting time. Uh, you're because you're gonna you know you've got the whole second mash to, to deal with stuff like that and then just sparge and collect your word as quickly as possible now, i mean part of reiterated mashing is getting a high extract efficiency and normally you know they tell you sparge slowly to do that uh you know over 90 minutes or, or something like that but here's the thing in it um if you're doing normal work collection uh you know, where you're sparging and collecting wort from the bottom as you add sparge water to the top, speeding that up a little bit, it does lower your extract efficiency a bit, but not an insane amount. And you're, you know, um, it just it just sort of comes down to how much you've got an already long brew day. How much are you willing, how much time are you willing to spend out a couple, you know, eke out a couple extra gravity points? Okay, so your yield after the first mat, for a five-gallon batch, you should yield about six and a half to seven gallons of wort at a specific gravity of 
of around 1040. If you sparge the grain bed to completion, uh, that that's roughly the uh, the specific gravity you should be at. And you should, depending on whether you mashed out or not, you should either be at uh, well, if you if you mash out, you you don't want to go all the way to 170. Uh, you want to go to about 160 if you do at most, just because you're using that wort in the next step as as uh, as your strike water, and you don't want it to be too hot. So it's either at around 160 or around 150, you know, sort of uh, in the ballpark of that, which is a normal uh, a single infusion mash uh, temperature. And so so you get the the six and a half to the seven gallons is going to be enough brewing liquor that it's your batch size plus the amount of liquid that's absorbed by the grains plus the amount you can expect to uh boil away in a 60 to minute 60 to 90 minute boil so you know ending up with five gallons of work okay so now you've got your, your brewing liquor prepared uh time for the second mash Okay, one thing you you need to clean out your mash tun in between that, but don't like don't worry about like scrubbing it with you know any sort of cleaner and getting it all spotlessly clean. You just used it like you know a couple literally a couple minutes ago. Just hose it out, dump out all the major stuff, and, and get going. Okay, so your goal in the second mash is you want to maximize your extract efficiency and get a, at a very high gravity work out of the the deal and the uh the the chemistry and the physics working against you is that you, you've got the crushed grains and you're trying to extract uh starch from them and then that you know that's going to get chewed up by the by the enzymes but given that you're mashing with wort and not water uh the the, the wort you have in your mash tun is already is at a high concentration so it slows the you know the extraction rate of the carbohydrates from your grains and the solution to this is just time you just have to do a longer mash um so for your second mash in a reiterated brew day mash it a little bit more thinly you know you'll use more strike water but a little less uh sparge water mash it thinly just enough that you can stir really nicely um relatively you want to start with a relatively low mash temp if you if you did sparge or did mash out to about 160 that'll take you to about 150 or you know let it drop to about 148 and, and that's a good single uh infusion mash temperature but if you didn't and your your word is at like 150 that, that means you'll mash in at about 140 and that's actually great that's at the peak of beta amylase activity and you're, you're, you're going to want to dry out the wort as much as you can, and so it's good to start there. Let it go for about an hour at 140, and then start heating it at a rate of about 2 degrees Fahrenheit uh, per, like, every 5 minutes, something like that. It's slow, it's a reasonably slow ramp. Stir it until it gets to, like, 152, okay? And then let it mash for another hour. Okay, so now, <laughs> here's the thing about reading and mashing. Now you're starting the real part of the brew day. The, you know, you're, now you're into the long slog. Uh, what you need to do is at that point, uh, recirculate a little bit, uh, not a ton, and just take a sample and take the specific gravity of it. 
Okay, it really helps if you have a, a refractometer because you don't want to, you know, if you're taking uh, uh, hydrometer readings, you've, you've got to take a relatively large volume of liquid and either add that back or, or dispose of it. But refractometer really helps. So take a refractometer reading, then let the mash go another 10 minutes and take another. You'll see that it's climbed a little bit. Okay, normally on a on a normal mash with just water and uh, mash grains, that that stops after a, a very short amount of time. I'm not I'm not sure exactly, but you know you 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 level out. But in reiterated mashing, it's slow. It's um it's very slow. <laughs> and and what happens is eventually you you know hypothetically you'd want to wait until the reading is the same like you've extracted all you can from the grains but what happens is you get bored you you know you spend three or four hours mashing and you're like you know what fuck this uh, you know i'm done <laughs> uh and you know and that's fine because you know it's just like but by that time you you will be close to the to your sort of maximum that you can get and you just have to decide how much of a perfectionist you want to be like if if i had a mash tun that that had like a heating loop you know, I would set it out and just let it go like overnight or something. That would be a good idea, but I, I don't have that. So um, anyway, you, you you sample, you'll see the uh, you'll see the specific gravity climb every you know every time you sample it, and you just have to decide when the when the rate of the climb is such that you're not interested in uh, pursuing that anymore. Okay, and then at this point you're basically just gonna brew like you normally do you want to recirculate uh you know get some clarity in the wort uh then you sparge with your remaining brewing liquor you know from the first mash and when you're done with that let that completely drain all the way through you know don't don't leave wort that you made behind in your mash ton and just let that go all the way through and at this point what you should have is for if you're making a five gallon batch, you should have a yield of about six to six and a half gallons of pre-boil work. And depending on how long you spent in the second match, the specific gravity can be up to 1080. Okay. And 1080, I realize, isn't like, you know, astoundingly high, but this is before the boil. And this is also you haven't used malt extract. You haven't done any of that. So if you if you did six and a half uh if, or if you collected six and a half gallons and it's somewhere close to, to 1080, uh, that's going to boil down to uh, 1.104. And that's going to ferment down to about a 10% ABV beer. If you've got six gallons at, at sort of closing in on 1080, uh, that's going to boil down to five gallons at uh, a specific gravity of 1.096, which will fer ferment down to a 9.5% uh, ABV beer. Okay, so both of those are, you know, uh, not the highest gravity beer ever, but, you know, then again, nine and a half and 10 isn't, it, you know, it's nothing to sneeze at. And then also, if you look at these, if, you know, um, if you've, if you've brewed them well, they're like straw colored. It's like a Pilsner, but it's very, very strong. And, oh, I skipped one thing. In the first mash, you should, uh, you know, add enough calcium like you would ordinarily do in, in for any any beer, just of course. Uh, in the second mash, 
add that same amount of calcium again to your water because you've whatever calcium uh, drove the pH down in the first mash that's gone now and you still need the pH to be in a reasonable range there. Although, I mean, it's a little flaky because your your wort is you know is going to be at the pH it's going to be at, but you want to add a little calcium because a adding a little more is not going to hurt anything, and b you you don't want the the pH to climb up. Uh, in the absence of having the calcium. So that, in a nutshell, is reiterated mashing. And uh, if you're wondering about, well, are there are there options to it? Are there different? Yeah, there's there's oodles of way ways that you can take this and change it. Uh, you know, uh, one of them, like you could, like I mentioned earlier. Um, if you just collect the first wort uh, from a mash and boil it down, that already leads to uh, that leads to you know uh, high gravity, low color at the expense of extract efficiency. Extract efficiency. But you can double that up. You can you can do two mashes of only first wort, and then you'd have even higher you know an even higher uh, specific gravity, but you know, still the same color, essentially, uh, you know, or very close to it, you know, and all you sacrificed is some grain. And, you know, at a homebrew scale, uh, if you're just being adventurous or whatever, yeah, you've, you know, you've undersparged a, a grain better too, you know, so it's not going to be a big deal. Um, another option you can do is at the end of your second mash, you can sparge a little more with water. When you're done, you know the the wort uh, at the the second mash is going to be is going to come off at uh, you know a fairly high. It's going to be around 1080, and so everything stuck in the mash ton after you sparge with the wort is going to be pretty high gravity, and you can sparge at least a little, get some of that out, you know, and you boost your extract efficiency at the expense of diluting the diluting the wort just a bit. Um, another option you can do is a shorter boil. I mean, if you're trying to absolutely minimize your color, you can say, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get the highest gravity ever, but I can, you know, I could do a 30 minute boil, uh, you know, throw in some, some high gravity hops and it'll be fine. And, and I'll, you know, I'll pick up the, the least amount of color that's reasonable. You can also take a take a page from Belgian brewing, uh, you know, especially the uh, the brewers who make triples, and add a little sugar. Okay, just just sucrose. Okay, because that's not going to add any color uh, to your wort, and just you know throw that in in the last five minutes of the boil, and you boost the uh, boost the gravity without boosting uh, the you know the color or whatever, and then you have some options that aren't as good. One, of course, is adding malt extract at the at the end, which that does add gravity, but you're also adding color, which you've worked not to add. And probably the worst option of all would be to then go ahead and do a longer boil, because that's just, unless you're like a masochist, why are you extending your mash <laughs> and your boil? You know, that, that makes, to me, that makes no sense. But, I mean, you could do it. It's an option. <laughs> okay, so if you ever try... Reiterated mashing. 
one thing I should do is set your expectations. And that's the first time you try it, your brew session is going to be an absolute fiasco. Like, think about the first time you tried just an or- ordinary uh, single infusion mash. If you're anything like me, it was like a, a comedy of errors because you're, you know, you're going through it the first time and then there's all these things to keep track of. And so it's just like exponentially worse with reiterated mashing. So if you do try it, don't get overly hung up on hitting every temperature, hitting every volume. Uh, all that just sort of use some sense yeah you know that's going to be a long brew day and know that you can uh if you're low on volume you can just add some water that's working against the, the high gravity part but you know who cares and uh you know if you're high on gravity you can just boil a, a little longer and that's of course that's working against your goals but again so what you know um if you take really good notes though by your second by your second brew day, you can have it, you know, you've gone from just being in the ballpark to like being in the infield and then, then you can start uh, refining it from there. I have, I have done one brew day where I went one more turn of the crank, went for a third. I took the super concentrated wort and used that as my brewing liquor for the next one. And that was, yeah, just don't do that. (laughs) What I would say, it's like, I mean, it did get, I did get higher gravity work and it was nice and, you know, low in color, but it was, that was, God, that was a long day. And it was, yeah, not, not optimal. <laughs> uh, there was a lot, yeah, easier ways to, to do that or, well, there wasn't, but it wasn't really worth it. I would think. <laughs> okay. So again, if you want to email me about the, uh, uh about reiterated mashing, uh, colbybrew at mac.com. And also there's a write-up on uh, Beer and Gardening Journal. Uh, one or both of those things should give you any more information. And uh, I don't know, does anyone have any questions? Yeah, are you able to see the uh, meeting chat in case people do? I Otherwise, so. I could just read them off. Let me, it must be around here on the... The bottom right. for me, it's in the bottom middle near the hang up conveniently. <laughs> Show conversation, is that it? Yeah, okay, now I can see it. Yeah, okay, let's see. I think you just had one question about reiterated mash at the bottom, though. How much grain is being used in each mash? Um, in the first mash, you want to generate six to six and a half gallons of uh is that right yeah no more like six and a half to whatever whatever amount you want it so you add that much grain so that when you fully sparge it uh you end up with that volume for me it's uh and this probably varies a little bit for everybody but for me if I fully sparge a grain bed, I collect about 0.65 gallons uh, per every pound of uh, grain I have. So if I have 10, 10 pounds of grain, I get six and a half gallons of wort at, at 1040, and I've sparged everything out of it before getting all the, the silicates and the and the tannins and, uh, and all that. So yeah. um, that's how much you use in the first. And then in the second, uh, it's pretty much the same amount. But it's just you're you're using uh, wort to mash with instead of water. 
So you're getting a, a, a lighter color using this method. Uh, are you getting a flavor impact as mm. well? Not I really. It's, already, it's... I, I realize there are already such pale beers are to begin with, but. Yeah, there's not like a couple of the first times I did it, I was thinking, well, I'm not only doubling up on the uh, the carbohydrates, but I'm doubling up on uh, the tannins. I'm doubling up on the proteins. And I was sort of worried that, but none of that really materialized. The the beer comes out, uh, really it's at, at like like every high gravity beer, the the quality of your fermentation is going to determine that the end result and you know of course the quality of your ingredients and stuff too but uh right. yeah i did i haven't noticed any any weird off flavors or off characteristics associated with this method you know it yields uh clear beer uh you know if you let it chill as, as you normally do and let uh chill haze if there's any dropout and if you if you find the beer you know, uh, I basically just use Irish moss um, in the kettle, and that's all you need, uh, or it's all I need. Um, you know, other people, other people use less Irish moss or you know whirlflock or whatever, and then they'll they'll do, you know, uh, a, fish bladder, yeah, an additional finding in, in the the fermenter, and, and you know whatever works. Uh, but yeah, I haven't really noticed any uh, weird flavors associated with it. Reiterated mashing. Yeah. Looks like you got a question from Will. Yeah, if I was brewing an internet imperial stout with this method, blah blah blah. Um, I wouldn't brew an imperial stout <laughs> with this method. That's just uh, there's there's no reason for that. Uh, um, yeah, I would go with. I can't even. Let me see if I can read the whole question. How would you split your grain bill base malts? Blah blah blah. Well, if I if I was doing it, I would probably add all the the, the colored, the dark uh, roasted malts and the crystal malts and stuff in the second mash. Uh, but like I said, this it, this is too much work for just that. And for an imperial stout, you're not really you wouldn't be accomplishing anything uh, by doing uh, a reiterated mash. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think if there would even be a single benefit to doing that. You could turn a brown ale into a light brown ale. You could, yeah, something like that. Yeah, I would just choose a different method for this. This is like for brewing like a big, either like a Pilsner or a golden ale or something like that. Yeah. Are there styles that you tend to exclusively brew uh, using reiterated mashing? Like Belgian triple makes a lot of sense, but wasn't sure um, about others. I, I've just sort of brewed, I've always just brewed sort of a beer based on the method not shooting for any style. So just, uh, I've either brewed it with like all Pilsner malt in, in both mashes, like no special grains, or I've brewed it with all Pilsner malt in the second mash, but in the first, like uh, maybe 40% flaked maize or something like that. So it makes super light, um, super light. And also when I was worried about uh, protein content, I was convinced that maybe the first mash should have some corn in it to, to lower the, uh, the the protein content but um yeah so i i really when i when i use the method which is very very infrequently because it's a very very long brew day it's uh it's just the lightest colored malts i can get uh the you know 
light colored adjuncts if I use adjuncts. And and one thing I haven't done is is done done the the triple thing, and just added sugar at the end. I mean that that's smart, but Makes there's also there's also trying to run a good fermentation, and I like I like to run a really ordered solid fermentation. So yeah, is this a way for somebody to uh, save on mash tun space then? I think somebody kind of had a comment about that. Oh yeah, that would be a bit. Yeah, if your mash tun space was limited, I guess doing that this way would be something. Hey, can you give me one minute? I need to uh, run to the restroom. <laughs> sounds good. I'm at that age where <laughs> when you got to go, you got to go. <laughs> Keepers, 25% beer, Frank. <laughs> yeah. percent that's crazy. Me, me, me and a friend were like, how much alcohol can we make? Let's try this. <laughs> and we even had to add uh, honey because he wasn't he wasn't kidding when he said um, it, it, it ruins your efficiency. I think oh, yeah. at the time I was getting like 80%, 79-ish. But when I did this, I got like 50, 60%. It was, it was, oh, wow. So we added we had like a pound of honey. I mean, it was a lot of honey. Yeah. And what it, type and, of beer was, was also it? Also, wasn't kidding. It, it finished at like, at like uh, six points, nine, nine points. Really? Yeah. It was. It was. It was a harsh beer. <laughs> yeah. That's how long did that take? Like a whole month? Uh, three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow, that's not bad at all. Jersey and Tim reviewed it, and they they basically just like oh. Oh, that's a lot of alcohol. Tastes like vodka. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's better now though. It's, it's it's like four years old now, so it's it's pretty good now. I understand why you didn't go through all of it yet. That would uh be an experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That'd be a lot of work. Oh yeah, it was it was a long brew day. It was it was like because we, we we didn't we didn't even think about doing the like you said the. Five ten minutes for the first iter first iteration, and then we did like an hour both iterations. So it, took, <laughs> <laughs> it was a long fucking day. <laughs> yeah, that was the first time I tried it. I did that, you know. I was like, well, I'll mash for an well, hour, and then I'll mash for another hour. <laughs> well, that makes sense because you're not because the, the whole the whole purpose of the longer uh, mash is to get you know smaller chain sugars. So you know the first yeah. mash just get the sugars into the wart. Next mash you break it down right okay that makes a lot of sense yeah cool. what you got there now chris oh just live oak nice yeah. jealous <laughs> yeah i haven't brewed in a while i'm um i'm gonna make a, a german hefeweizen soon like i'm not sure how soon but soon and that'll be the first beer i brewed in like a, a, a substantial amount of time so i'm excited for that yeah and i'm going to take half of the wort and just have it make it just a german plain old german hefeweizen but then i'm going to divert about half of it and add raspberries like oh. way back in the day like a raspberry wheat beers were a thing and and i liked them you know so I'm yeah you don't see fruit more. beers as much right. weirdly enough no unless they're the exploding sour kinds right yeah, but people... not a lot of like raspberry wheat type things yeah, I mean, and they they used to be more popular. Fruit, lactose, hazies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I guess now raspberry wheat's used I'm to be the thing right ruining now, the beer industry. I'm not a, I'm not a fruit beer person. <laughs> the yes. plus point about a hazy beer exploding is you don't have to drink the rest of the crap. <laughs> there's like well i i've got to admit there's one or two hazy ipas i like but for the most part i'm just like oh are you kidding me no yeah it's not a, it's not a terribly easy style to get right yeah i would say it's yeah it's it's a fundamentally bad style and if you get it right you <laughs> you've done so by some weird See, I, I i like hazies but i don't i don't like i remember brute ipas that was the same same argument I made for brood IPAs. It was like I, I found one I liked. <laughs> it was just like eh, the rest are not great. <laughs> yeah, gypsum is your friend when brewing a uh, an IPA. Brood. If you get if you get a lot of calcium sulfate into the into the mash, that that's generally going to help you do to a point. Uh, it's going to help make the make the hops better. Uh, the hop expression. That was a problem with me for a long time. I'd try to brew, I'd, I'd brew beers and just pour in the hops, and it was like, you know, yeah, it's it's bitter and it's, but it's, it just doesn't have, you know, I, I would taste like a, a Stone IPA, or a Racer Five, or a uh, what was the Dogfish Head Sixty Minute or something, and I was just like, there's something about these that I'm not getting in my home brews, and that makes I, it pop. Yeah. I finally, yeah, read uh, some home brewers. Uh, who are doing very well at IPAs, and we're like, yeah, let's add gypsum. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I think uh, hazies are starting to use more gypsum too lately. But there's one who makes electric jellyfish. That one I'm not so terribly. Yeah, I'm not sure who that is. Pine House. Pine House, that's right. It's in an Austin brewery. Oh. How's your beer for basic uh, brewing going? How's the what? How's your beer for basic brewing? I haven't even going? started it. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to start it soon. I was just telling these guys, yeah, Still I'm a, a wheat and a raspberry wheat. Yeah, James is always, we, we've done a series of uh, like recipe formulation shows yeah. with him. Like, what would you put in this? And he's I'm like, I'm going to brew this. And then, like, next week, he's like, it's in the fermenter. Like, how has <laughs> yours pro, you know, progressed? And I'm like, uh, you know, <laughs> planning. Store. Very definitely approaching this, you know, slowly. Very getting all my ducks in a row. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've heard those interviews. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure he's just like, oh, Jesus Christ, get it in gear, dude. <laughs> <laughs> So Chris, you, are you planning on uh, growing anything in the garden that you would be using in beers? Um, not this year, unfortunately. I uh, in the past I grew hops, uh, and then we had a huge, huge uh, well, what do you call it? The dry drought. season and yeah. drought. Yeah, in in 2011, and 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 that killed them off. I uh, I grew barley in my garden one year i just said took the whole garden and made barley but unfortunately i didn't when i got to that point i, I had no plan to thresh it and so threshing <laughs> it was just this, this comedy of errors and and i eventually just got to the point where you know i got like this tiny amount of 
of barley out of it and i and i sort of malted that well not sort of i malted it and you know it was like one handful of malt in a otherwise you know batch full of so yeah i'd like to, i'd like to brew or i'd like to grow barley again and just but first find some method of, of threshing that i could do uh that, that would work at a because just sort of i was just trying to like take the stalks and just basically beat them against the side of a bucket thinking that the you know the grain would all fall in and and the, the chaff would stay behind but that, that was going nowhere quickly yeah what kind of variety did you have to use to grow barley in uh, texas i grew uh robust barley it was a uh, it's a six row kind okay and another year i grew a, like a little bit more for decoration uh what was it i grew some sort of two row variety yeah the thing about growing barley in your own like i know a lot of home brewers have like this um this dislike of six row barley because it's, mm-hmm. it's typically goes in american pilsners and it's malted to go in american pilsners right uh and you know you you've probably read like oh the kernels are smaller or whatever but if you grow it in your garden uh you know you can grow it can be you can get kernels every bit as plump as a two row you, you know, just have to space the, them more. The two, yeah, just, just density and then fertilization and, yeah. you know, or and stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, you can malt it to, you can malt it to be a Vienna malt if you want it. It just never gets malted like that way in a, in the United States. And it's, it's higher protein. So you've got some, in the malting, you have some opportunities there oh. to, to develop more Maillard products and stuff like that. And I mean, I, di- I didn't, I just made a pale malt with mine, but. I was thinking about that's that'd be interesting yeah it, it's it, yeah and also just i mean if if someone was thinking about growing barley in there i would just i would find a variety that, that grows well where you are start there don't worry about this being the the best brewing variety ever because uh, you can plant that but if it doesn't grow in your area then you just wasted your time have you tried growing uh, those Neo Mexicanas hops? No, I haven't. Those are those are, those those are, are interesting. Really, yeah, I had really tough luck growing them in regular varieties in Texas, but those ones really like the uh, latitude yeah, that we're I grew, at and the heat and everything. When I was growing, I, I grew a, a bunch of different things. I had like Cascade, Centennial, uh, Galena, um, and then I had a bunch of the sort of English. Uh, English and German noble hops and stuff like that. And the Cascades grew amazingly. Cascades and Centennial and Galena were all really like great robust plants. The uh, the European like uh, hoity-toity hops just sort of <laughs> like did not deal with Texas. And then I was trying to figure out, uh, even though they grew well, they turned out really grassy. And, uh, you know, apparently that's a thing uh, that hops do when they they're grown at high temperature oh and one thing i was trying to do is because you can cut back hops during the growing season and they'll they'll, they'll delay their their uh yeah i've know, done that myself um i was thinking of can i cut back hops late enough in the texas growing season that that, that it's like september or october or even you know early november that they finally start producing cones yeah. and uh, before i got to test that, that that's the year that all my my plants uh, died 
Well, it's a, I can say firsthand it at least seems to work pretty well because, yeah, I, I tend to cut mine back for two or three months uh, here before letting them go crazy. And nice. yeah, harvesting would actually gets cool. When do you, yeah, when do you harvest? Uh, like November or so, if I can help it. Wow. Nice. It's still pretty hot, but uh, it's, it's, at least it's not like September. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm glad to hear that that works because I I always wondered about that. Yeah, they're pretty weird though those varieties, but uh, looks like we have a hand raised from Daniel. Yeah, I just bought a uh, new stainless steel mash tun, and uh, I just planned on cleaning it with uh, PBW and going on with my brewing. And then last week we got an email from More Beer. A newsletter saying how important pacifying stainless steel is and went on and on and on. I thought we we're past that and we're not doing that anymore. Uh, did some searching and couldn't find really much in the last eight years. Everybody said it's not really necessary. What is your view on that? Yeah, I've never, I've never bothered to do that. I don't know if, if I'm suffering some horrible consequences, uh, I, I don't know what they are. Um, okay. you know, did John Palmer write that? Because he's he's a metallurgist I, and he's... I was going to look it up. I was trying to find it and I couldn't find the email. I think I deleted it and I'm trying to go through the trash and trying to find where it was. But uh, yeah, I don't know who the author was or how much I knew from last time that you're you know, a scientist. So uh, I was asking your more scientist opinion on it. Yeah, my scientific opinion is I know absolutely dick about uh, metallurgy. Yeah, <laughs> not my field. Uh, yeah, if I have a question about that, I'll call like John Palmer, or Colin Kaminsky, or somebody. But, Were you uh, a chemist though? Uh, I was a chemist, it's mostly biology. My PhD oh, okay. is in biology. My undergraduate degrees are I've got chemistry and biology. Oh, okay. Pretty different. Uh, I worked as a chemist for a while. Um, Looking like we're getting some comments about that, though, maybe from people who know something. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to learn more. I mean, I, I just have never bothered to do it. One one response I heard, which kind of makes sense, was professionals do it or brewers, professional brewers do it because they use more caustic or more stronger chemicals with their stainless steel than we do in the home brew and so that's why they do it but we really don't need it on our end that could be yeah i mean because yeah professional brewers they have, they'll have their uh, cip operations clean in place and they'll you know their, their cleaning is essentially just they have pumps pumping uh cleaning fluid into into the vessel and there's like a spray ball well at least one way of doing it is a spray ball in the middle of the the vessel and it just sprays all the sides and they recirculate that through and yeah homebrewers don't have that intensity of you know we're not pumping that much caustic liquids through our uh so yeah maybe we're just not bothering our stainless steel <laughs> to, to the point where we need to, to passivate it but yeah i don't know that's that's just a good question okay <laughs> yeah i've always just used barkeeper's friend like before i've done anything with any kind of stainless just kind of give it like a once over just to make sure things are clean and then then PBW after that. 
and they kind of considered that you know quote unquote passivated and never any issues from there more or less for my, my own sanity more than anything else that's what more beer the article said was to use barkeeper's friend and then maybe uh is it maybe if it has a lot of oil start with like a normal dish detergent just to get rid of the oils for the only time you really want to do that and then use barkeeper's friend and then uh that was pretty much it it didn't say pbw after that I, yeah it's more like peace, or peace of mind add, anything yeah def- definitely first wash do a, a degreaser i mean out of the machine shop you, you're gonna have a lot of a lot of oils cutting oils a lot of cleaning oils a lot of everything so you just just clean it with some degreaser first and then and then think about just uh, have your first brew it. wash all that crap out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your beer is like, like, this tastes like machine oil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. It's part of the process. Yeah. You, you, you don't make it. about Barkeeper's friend is something I heard around a lot. And then I realized it's, it's like $3 at Home Depot. So it's, it's more than you're probably going to use in and, your and, life. And they actually, yeah, it's cheap. Now. And it's good. You I mean, you get it pre mixed, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was actually there. They had the liquid and they had the powder and they were, I didn't know what to get and they were cheap enough. I just grabbed one of each and, and they both. It's the way to go. Same, same story here. Yeah. <laughs> Does Home Depot literally call it Barkeeper's Front? Yeah. Yep. Or they call something yeah, else. That's the brand name. It's, that's the brand name. Yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, you don't need a very strong acid to passivate either. And I'm 90% sure Barkeeper's Friend is an acid. I, I, I always assume Starsand did that for me be honest i, I don't we, know we, ha- we, we had so many acids including the beer itself and the brewing process so right. i think we're okay i might eat my words though if somebody in the brew club says they die of rust poisoning uh <laughs> later this week how often do you use barkeeper's friend like every batch or nah every five batches ten batches i'll, I'll use it, it if i see a lot of a lot of scale or something it's really once good it's really good for removing scale yeah okay yeah, i do like i do like once a year just kind of keep up from all, all my cleaning God. in bastrop like you can get scale on something like you can you can have a nice clean glass and just pour a glass of water and then you drink it and it's like <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like what is in this water <laughs> Yeah, we have we have real real hard water here in Florida, so it's it's a lot of that. <laughs> so do I in Southern California. It's real chunky. <laughs> chunky style water. Yeah, here Austin's not the best water either. Yeah, no, no it's like it's like filtered through like a billion feet of limestone or something because it's it's just it's just carbonate central. It's great for more stouts and porters though. Yeah. Do you, do you buy I, your water? I, um, I do. I'm, I use, I, you know, I'll look up the latest uh, mineral content in the in the municipal water, and I'll calculate like how much, how much distilled water do I need to bring that down the the carbonates down to under 50 parts per million. If I'm at least if I'm bringing that pale beer. And then so I just yeah dilute everything with with distilled water, uh, and then add whatever calcium back that I want. Yeah, well that makes sense that you don't get to brew all the time if you have to physically go buy water to get started yeah. brew day. Well, I, I haven't been brewing much lately. It's not really anything about 
that. It's just been, it's been a bum hanging around. And I mean, I've been gardening and stuff and doing, but it's just been like, I mean, I brewed since 1990 and I had, I had a lot of years where I was brewing like a lot, like insane amounts. And now I'm just sort of like, I've done that. You know, and I, and I just want to, you know, I want to like when I want to, I want to brew something and have it turn out well. And then I don't want to think like the next, you know, two weeks from then, I'm like, oh, I got to brew again. You know? Yeah. Is there anything in your garden currently that you're thinking about incorporating into the kitchen or brewing? Not really. Um, I've got I'm growing uh, for the first time ever a Tropa Belladonna Deadly Nightshade. So okay. no, no on that. <laughs> I'm also it's brewing. Not, it's, it's not, it's not like nettles where you can just boil it to get rid of the poison. No. And I'm growing a monkshood, uh, or aconite, which is like, it's not only poisonous, <laughs> but it's, it's a contact hazard. Like if you touch it, your hands will go numb. And I'm like, wow, I'm excited for this. This not, I'm not going to touch it, but. Oh, and yeah, I'm gonna make that, sure that, that, all the yeah. goddamn animals can get to it, and including little kids. But there's no little kids in the neighborhood, so. Yeah, just the name of it sounds like something a wizard would use to curse his enemies. So. Yeah, it's it actually shows up in there's a movie there's a Canadian horror movie called Ginger Snaps, which is a really good movie, <laughs> and and it shows up in there. It's a uh, an anti uh, lycanthrope lycanthropy drug or whatever. And, Maybe an anti-everything, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's nasty, but but can beautiful flowers. I mean, so and I've got I don't know I somehow got in the habit of growing growing poisonous plants, so I'm branching out in that respect. Uh, do you do you have a squirrel problem that you're trying to permanently deal with? Oh, I've got squirrels all over, and they dig through my garden constantly. I should. I should be dealing with like with my wrist rocket, but <laughs> I don't know. I just uh, I let them, you know, whatever, and I just come and fix it afterwards. Yeah. I got a question about pH. At what point do you measure pH? Um, I measure pH pretty much throughout the brewing process. Um, I'll mash in, let it let the mash go for about five minutes recirculate a little bit and, and drop some mash and then you you hope that after it, it takes a little while for the the mash ph to drop to the proper point but after like five minutes you should be pretty close to where you're finding so so i do it in the mash um as i and i do continuous sparging um i do it at the, near the end of the sparge just the, the, the final runnings i just sort of keep a a, a ph meter going and and i'll watch for i don't want the ph to climb up above 5.8 near the end of the the thing and then um i'll do a post boil sample because i want i want to I, I usually add a little bit of calcium during the boil and i want the ph to drop from uh five you know 5.2 5 foot whatever 5 point whatever it was uh in the mash tun i want it to drop to, to 5.0 by the end of the boil so i'll do a, a test there and then I, sometimes i used to I used to do take the pH of the finished beer a lot, but these days I found if if you if your wort is is 5.0 going into the fermenter, uh, the yeast is going to take care of the rest. I've never I never had a problem 
with uh, a too high pH if you if you set it up right in the uh, leading up to fermentation. So th those are the points. I, well, one thing I don't do is like a lot of brewers seem to be hung up on uh, the pH of their sparge water. And 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 here's the thing, it's absolutely fucking irrelevant. Uh, you know, uh, your sparge water, uh, it's water. You know, duh. Uh, it, it has no buffering value whatsoever. You know, it, even the worst municipal water is, is is basically completely unbuffered. So whatever the pH is, it, it it's not going to matter because the second it hits your your grain bed, it's going to be the pH of your grain bed. So there's really, you know, and I've read you know, books on homebrewers who, uh, you know, are otherwise, you know, fairly intelligent and well-regarded and they go <laughs> on and on about, uh, you know, adding acid to your sparge water. And I'm just like, you know, uh, your local college probably has an introductory chemistry course <laughs> and you can learn about acids, bases, and buffers. You know, or go to your local library. It's a fine place <laughs> with many, many books. You'll learn ever so much. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I take the I take the pH of of wort and I take the pH of post boil wort, and and that's mainly where I do. And you know, I used to you can take the pH of beer, and it's especially if you if something just seems off, if the beer doesn't have yeah, the Germans have a word for it, it's like zing. It's not, but it's whatever the German word for zing is. Um, if it just sort of feels lifeless, then maybe take the pH and see if something's gone astray. Because if it if it climbs too high, it's uh, it just the, the beer just doesn't seem to have uh, a crispness to it, and mm -hmm. if it climbs way too high, there you can even get into like a soapy. But I mean, I think you'd you have to screw up pretty badly to get it to that level. But yeah, pH meter and pH meters are great these days. Oh my god, when I when I was in chemistry class, we used to we had these pH meters, and we'd have to go through all this rigmarole of uh, you know, they'd have to, the the uh, thing would have to sit in the right buffer, and then you'd have to clean it extensively every time, and then you'd have to, um, you know, you'd have to calibrate it, go through this huge calibration thing that would work for about two minutes, and then it, then you'd have to <laughs> calibrate it again. And these days, it's just like, bloop, you know, and it tells you the pH, and you just sort of half-ass rinse it off, and it's fine. Yeah. And they're cheap, too. pH meters are cheaper than, I don't know, dirt these days. They're great. A great brewing tool. Yeah, that's good to know. I've been kind of staying away from them just because of uh, remembering how awful they were, uh, I don't know, even 15 years ago. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, doing the, you have to do the, the two point uh, calibration and with the old, I remember the, you know, I was using them, I'm old enough that they had the meters and the needles and not the digital readout like you fancy pants brewers these days. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the good old analog. Yeah. Are you trying to are you trying to get your pH for your dark and light beers, um, pale beers to all be 5.0 at post boil? That's a good question. Um, pale beers definitely. Uh, dark beers can drop a little bit below that. Um, although it's weird. I mean, dark grains themselves are more acidic than. Uh, Pale grains and that tends to drive the uh, the pH down, but if you let it go too low, the bears are lifeless, or or at least that the expression of the dark malts isn't good. So I mean I do 
I try to keep the pH intact or in in check in the in the mash by keeping enough when I brew a dark beer enough carbonates in the mash to keep it to like you know 5.2 in the mash or, or 5.2 to 5.6 and then 5.0 at the end of the uh, the boil and then from there whatever happens in the uh, uh, in the fermentation I'm usually happy with. Have you ever? So, yeah, I mean, I think. Oh. Go ahead. Sorry. What was it? No, go ahead. What was the question? Oh, do you ever adjust your pH uh, late in the process, or? It usually doesn't happen. I mean, if if there's an emergency, if if something went and I'm just like way off, then yeah, I would go with some phosphoric acid or something. But generally, um, just getting your water chemistry right, uh during the mash is going to help everything throwing a little bit of calcium in during the boil, like another 50 parts per million. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't even think of a time when that didn't, right. You know, give, give me the results that I wanted. Something else would be going wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I did have once where I I went, uh, there's a homebrew store that's no longer here in Austin. And I bought, I forget what some, some chemical for, for treating the you know your mash liquor or whatever and i had i brewed a batch of beer with it and it was terrible and i was like what the hell is this and i finally found out that the the thing that i bought which i thought was phosphoric acid was actually like ph7 buffer they had just <laughs> mislabeled it you know because they bought it in bulk and then put it broke it down into smaller things and i finally i went through all my brewing chemicals and i was like what the fuck is this and, and i smelled it and it's like that's not phosphoric acid and then I took the oh, pH man. of it, and it was pH 7. And I was like, I know what this is. <laughs> Oof, that's rough. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's like a whole day ruined because, yeah. But, and not like that, you don't have phosphoric acid. Hmm. I related, I had a buddy uh, off Amazon. He bought, like, a gallon of, like, 90% phosphoric acid. Like it was like maybe a gallon and a half. Like it was a good price. He was like giving it out. So, you know, one of the guys in the brew club, you know, took his uh, 10% phosphoric bottle over there and got it refilled. And then uh, a brewer day later, so later, he uh, he added it as, it as if it was 10%. <laughs> uh, I think he was hoping that, well, maybe it'd be a good experiment. He could bring it to the, but I think it just didn't even ferment. It was. His gravity was just terrible, and it didn't ferment, and it was so. So don't add like several milliliters of ninety percent phosphoric acid. <laughs> Big takeaway. That's funny. <laughs> I, I do remember from way back in the day the the story <clears throat> of, uh, and I don't know if this is apocryphal or I mean enough people have homebrewed it probably happened, but uh, the story of somebody. You're making a five-gallon batch of beer, and it comes bottling time, and they they look on the thing, and they you know uh, three quarters cups of sugar, but for some reason they add three quarters of cups of salt to the to their beer, and then of course they got flat salty beer out of it. And uh, anyway, a good story. I don't know if it's true or not, but a good story. Funny. Well, uh, how long are we uh, keeping you here? Just noticed it was a little after eight, so I don't know if you had anything planned. 
God, no, I'm boring. <laughs> I well, used we're to all here uh, too. In, in graduate school, like I remember in graduate school, like 10 or 11 a night was still a perfectly good time for someone to call me up and say, Hey, you want to go out? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and nowadays it's like nine o'clock rolls around and I'm like, I'm going to bed. <laughs> yeah, by asking if you had something later tonight, I guess I meant, do you have a pillow to get to soon? Yeah, no, I got, I usually, uh, my wife lives in Boston now. And so I, and I'm sort of stuck here dealing with our animal farm. Uh, and so I, I usually like uh, talk to her via Skype at nine, but that's a ways off. Yeah. Yeah, I heard uh, you've got a, a couple cats there. Yeah, we yeah we we made some mistakes. Let's say that <laughs> we, we we brought in some some pitiful looking outdoor female cats who then crapped out litters full of <laughs> and we for a while we we're a lot better now. We you know cats have an expiration date and uh, we had a whole bunch of cats that. Uh, sadly reached that expiration date and now we're now we're down to a smaller number but still but still into the crazy cat person but uh, don't learn your range. lesson fully yeah yeah nowadays i see a cat outside i'm like don't you try that don't you look at me that way <laughs> you are staying outside you dumb animal <laughs> do you have any uh books in the work mm, i do i uh Weirdly enough, I, I, I had a book on brewing and science that I pitched to the Brewers Association, and they said, yeah, that sounds good. And then I wrote it for them, and then they paid me the advance, and then they said, you know what? We don't want to publish this. And I was like, oh, wait, what? And they said, well, this wasn't what I expected. And I was like, did you read the extended outline I sent you that told you like pretty much exactly what it was going to be? And it's like... Yeah, but it just wasn't what we expected. I was like, so whatever. But then they gave me the rights back to it, so I oh, yeah. technically can sell it to somebody else. And also, I'm I'm writing a book on a, a cooking chicken. I'm like, I I love grilling and frying and roasting and uh, so I'm making a chicken cookbook. Uh, I tried to pitch that to a, a Page Street, which I, I published my first three books to, and they. They didn't even respond, so <laughs> I'm guessing that doesn't interest you. You could always reach out to the Brewers Association, try to get an advance fee, and then yeah, call it good enough. So you and learned then, actually you want to pick a pick a topic of something you actually enjoy. You know, you can then you can go eat chicken instead of drinking seltzers. Yeah, yeah, that would be good. I'm also like I've I've got like a whole pile of sort of half-assed things that I'm doing like uh, a friend and I a friend of mine from Iceland and I are supposedly writing a horror movie script and we've sort of that's going slow but but it's it's like a good idea me and another friend are supposedly writing a book on atheism but again that's going slow and then I had this idea like uh, a couple years ago at my book club this guy recommended uh the Wheel of Time series it's like this sword and sorcery D and D, you know, Lord of the Ringsy shit like that. And I, I decided to write something like that only as a comedy. 
sort of and I, and I love Terry Pratchett's book so nice. obviously heavily influenced by that but so I have this, this sort of fantasy novel that I'm working on that's uh, uh set in sort of something that's that's basically a, a it's basically Norway but on a different uh plane or dimension or whatever but it's obviously like Norway and Scandinavia and all sorts of very very scandinavian stuff happens and and hopefully to comic effect but you know we'll see nice are you going to be kind of uh, acknowledging that it's a, a ripoff of norway kind of terry pratchett style oh yeah i mean there's i i couldn't i couldn't if, if the book turns out like it's heading i i i couldn't you know, with a straight face, ever say, oh, Terry Pratchett, never heard of him, you know, <laughs> never read all of his books twice, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's no way, it, it's, it's obviously a, a taking from that, that, that vein of humor, sort of, and, uh, and just like, I was, a, I was a Lord of the Rings nut as a kid, you know, I read all the books a couple times, and, you know, when I read the, the Wheel of Time series or whatever, pretty good, and, I don't know. There was even there was a series when I was younger. Well, and it still exists. It was like the the white gold wielder. I don't know if you ever. It was, it was some guy who lived in our world, and he had like diabetes or some shit like that. But then when he went to the the other is world, he the he guy had that these, was these the one that was hit by a car and. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it was yeah. it was crazy, and it was. <laughs> Just had a friend that was <laughs> illustrating a uh, a reboot of one of those old fantasy series where it was like a guy that was kind of pathetic in real life and gets hit by a car. And I guess that sends him to the fantasy realm. It was a little bit odd. Yeah. Those are all sort of the life of Walter Mitty rehashes, you know, somebody, <laughs> a Harry Potter, you know, someone in our world who isn't that good, but then they're, yeah. My book's not like that. Mine's book is entirely just set in fake Norway. Uh, but there's the, well, what I hope is a funny part of it is that all the Norse gods are, are alive and kicking around there. And they're, you know, you can, you can meet them if you, if you happen to run into them at the right time and that sort of stuff. And they, the, the idea is they, uh, well, one of the ideas is there's like, one of the things that's always struck me is like the, the Bible or the Quran or, whatever the, the Jewish thing is or whatever any of those things is, is like they're supposedly written by God, but there's nothing in them that has any scientific value. There's no, like, here's the secret of the atom. You know, you don't find any of that stuff. It's just all what ignorant shepherders 6,000 years ago knew, you know, or 2,000 years ago. So whatever, one of the ideas in the novel is that Odin has written this book and it's in code. There's just wave after wave of new scientific and cultural knowledge and people gradually gradually <laughs> work their way through it. it yeah yeah and and they keep asking odin to like help them like translate it and he's like you know it's meant for you to translate you do it right and, uh, learn how to use a ruler first yeah exactly that's a pretty good idea yeah it's not bad it's just like because one of the things i said like then that if you're whatever whatever your beliefs are i'm not trying to offend you but i'm just trying to say like in the bible you know god is described as like all seeing all knowledge, like all knowing and he never does a single smart thing throughout the entire bible 
there's not one thing that you you go like, wow, that was really smart. That guy's clever. It's like, no, he just seems like a like a gigantic, you know, oversized 2000 year old sheep herder. You know, that some of the shepherd would go, that guy's awesome. You know, that guy probably with a red like make Israel great again hat. Or <laughs> mm, we're still recording. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah whatever that's, yeah yeah and no, here's something fun. that's hard to hard to believe like right uh right before christmas i thought because i tend to say things that are on my mind even when i should and uh, i thought i had burned my bridges for two different places that i write for because i had things transpired and i and i said some things and then I wrote them back, you know, just at, like business as usual. What's up next? Blah, blah, blah. And I didn't hear from them. And I was like, ah, shit. You know, <laughs> like what? there are consequences to my action. That's bullshit. <laughs> Can't relate. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but then it turns out they, they wrote me back and there was no, they, they knew me, you know. My... Thankfully, if you're like that 24 seven, people tend to be uh, more forgiving. Yeah, yeah, they're just like, yeah, that's just him doing his shtick. It's not about you when he made that offhand comment. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's just, funny. One of my yeah. one of my best friends is a Christian missionary, and oh my god, he and I have the best conversations because he's he's the same way as I am. Just like I'm gonna say what I'm gonna say, and you know I'm not gonna accommodate you and your beliefs or whatever so we and then we both like you know we're just like yeah that's him that's of course he would say that yeah i don't think you have to worry about offending people if 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 you know where both of you stand on things (laughs) i remember at one time when i was working for a, a brewing magazine that shall remain unnamed but anyway we had something and you know this was this was at not the start of when things were getting overly sensitive but you know people were sensitive about stuff and there was one thing that we had that could have been interpreted as being anti-muslim and they're like are we gonna offend our muslim readers and i was like this is a brewing magazine how many muslim readers do you think we have? <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know how are they someone is gonna have to tell them about this for them to be offended you know <laughs> And, and, and it, it was it was a stretch to even think that they would be. It wasn't, you know, like anything. But I was like, yeah, who? <laughs> Jesus Christ, so to speak. It's so to speak. <laughs> See you, Will. See you, Will. All right, guys, I got to split. Hey. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Thanks. guys. Thanks for inviting me. I had a great time. Yeah, don't you guys go to the same group club? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Austin Zealots. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a great club. We got uh, a lot of really good brewers there. We have, uh, there's one guy, Mark Shoppy, who they had to change the rules of the uh, National Homebrew Contest because of him. Uh-oh. Uh, so he's good. We got another guy, Corey Martin, who won the 
one of those years, you know, the Sam Adams contest. Yeah, yeah. So he won that one year. And uh, I think his brother won in another year. Or he won some. Yeah, what rules did they have to change? Um, it used to be you just submitted however many beers you wanted. And he, uh, he had a job such that he was able to uh, he, he mostly worked from home and he, and he was able to just brew however many beers that he wanted. And he was also in the practice of, he would brew like, uh, he'd brew a Scottish 80 and then he would dilute some of it into a Scottish uh, 70 and some into a 60. And, oh you know, he would, he had all these, <laughs> all these combinations of beers that were just diluted versions of the others. And he would just submit this pile of beers and he <laughs> won home brewer of the year. Well, at least once, maybe maybe, tw- maybe the second year was the time Jeepers. that they said, you know what, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so what, they, the, they, how, what did they have to limit it to, like ten or so? I forget. There's a there's a limit now uh, of how many beers you can submit, and and the scoring, like your your best beers have to score. You can't just you can't, you can't be the just, entire competition. You can't just yeah score mediocre on a thousand beers and and win Brewer of the Year. You've got to have some, <laughs> some good and and I mean, he he did have some high scoring beers, but he also like just just blanketed yeah the competition with his entries. Yeah, well there there is something to be said for Brewer of the Year going for someone who makes a batch basically every five days all year. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> even if it's mediocre. He's, oh. I, I've never, I've never, well, I've, I've been outside his house at a barbecue, but I've never been inside of his house. But apparently, like, he, uh, it, his house is just cases of beer stacked everywhere, like, everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> Going back to, you know, whatever. Right. Just, just to be ready for the next competition, you mean? Yeah. Sheesh. <laughs> Well, did I miss a good uh, presentation? No. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid we have to delete the recording. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was, it was, there was a lot of uh, wrong information, and he taught us how to mash backwards. Yeah. Turning turning malted or malted grain into unmalted grain, and it's pretty we'll, weird. We'll just reverse the recording, and it should be good, right? Okay, we can work with that. <laughs> <laughs> then we can start with a discussion on God and then lead into beer. Lead into, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Oh, shit, looks like we lost pretty much everyone, huh? Oh, yeah. But yeah, I, I suppose you don't see too many of those kind of uh, parody fantasy novels that much anymore since Pratchett left the scene. Yeah, there's a. Uh... My wife found it actually. There's a, I forget. It's on. It's on like Prime or Netflix. I can't remember where. I think Prime. There's a a cartoon D and D show that relies oh, heavily on sort of adult humor. Critical Role, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There we go. Yeah. Is it actually worth checking out? It was pretty good. It's yeah, pretty, it's it's yeah. like if you've ever, I don't know, you know, as a high school kid i, 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 I mean, I, mean I, I was gonna say i play D like three times a week so <laughs> nice <laughs> that wasn't obvious 
But <laughs> I would, God, I would like to get back into doing it just as, because I'm, you know, mostly bored out of my skull a lot recently. That's uh, the problem is I have, I, I tell people I do D&D a bunch and then I have a bunch of people say, gosh, I wish I could do it. And I'm like, well, I'll run a group for you too. And then. <laughs> <laughs> it's always I actually something. sort of like oh, half-assed yeah. designed a D&D world once. And my, my idea was like, as, as a biologist, when you look at all the monsters in D&D, some of them are so like fucking unrealistic. Right. Like, oh, so it's this lone monster. There's not like a population of it. There's a single Tarrasque. Yeah. And, and it's gigantic. And like, what is what is it eating all this time? You know, you, you got to you gotta have an ecology and this stuff like that. So I made a, a sort of, you know, how, how I sketched out the basics of a world where there were, you know, enough of the standard D&D monsters, but it, it may, you know, they lived in populations. populated. Yeah. And it made some made some sense, you know. That sounds like, really what's entertaining. A, what's what's a cube doing living in the bottom of a, you know, cave that gets visited once every eight thousand years? You know, uh, yeah. yeah, I think his metabolism's not going to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, ignoring the fact that something like a dragon or whatever is some like hundred foot tall vertebrate. Uh, yeah. I guess. Yeah. You, so you essentially, chuck- I used science to squeeze all the fun out of D and D. Like with the right group, you squeeze it in. To be fair, that sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pet friends kind of joke about that too, being like, you know, it feels like D and D worlds never really think about the fact that there are literally wizards that can wish things into existence. Like, how how does that not yeah. affect the economy? And uh, exactly, like they're still ruled by kings and same exact as as, as our Middle Ages, but somehow you can just alter reality and go about your day. And I always like, I don't know, like I'm a huge Star Wars fan, but there's that one scene and I forget what, it was one of the first three where they land in an asteroid and then oh, yeah. it's all, and then it turns out, yeah, it's a, it's this giant worm that comes out. And I'm like, what is a giant worm eating inside a fucking <laughs> asteroid field? You know, how did it get to be that big? Are that many spaceships stopping by this asteroid field and landing in his mouth? It's a recurring problem, I guess. Like, like help me? Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Like, uh, yeah, it's a shuttle from Star Trek and then somebody from Star Wars and then somebody from a Firefly. (laughs) This recurring... That's that's the real reason the Empire didn't follow them into the asteroid is they're like, oh, shit, this thing. Yeah, it's eating, it's eating 100 yeah. people this month. We're not following that, We're not following that again. <laughs> These dumbasses <laughs> don't live here. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> okay, well, I should get yeah. going. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's just basically two of us. <laughs> well, yeah, it was fun. Uh, I enjoyed. I enjoyed it. I hope people got something out of it. Yeah, thanks for doing that. I know Teams was being kind of messy, but looks like you got sorted out. It worked fine for me. I just logged right in and I was like, bloop, there you go. Awesome. Well, maybe catch you next time. Okay. Talk See to you later. Yeah. Bye bye.